With that, why don't we uh, open our Bibles to the book of Acts. We've been in a series in the book of Acts, taking it verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 4 right now, and what I want to do before we jump in, uh, we're going to read a section out of the book of Acts, chapter 4. We'll read at about verse 13 down to verse 22. Um, I'll give you a quick little backstory. In fact, um, why don't we all stand, and we'll read God's Word together. Uh, the quick little backstory is um, this is sort of the story of the church as it's growing, as it's beginning to circle out. Peter and John, these were two leaders in the early church. They went to the temple to go pray. As they're going to the temple, there's a man that is crippled. Uh, he's, we're told that he was uh, basically every day out there begging for money. Uh, he begged Peter and John for money. He didn't have, Peter and John said they didn't have any money. Uh, instead, they reached out their hand and they grabbed a hold of the other guy's hand who has been crippled, and they said, what we do have in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. So they stretched out their hand, lifted the guy, he begins to walk, and an absolute miracle happens. And this is uh, earth-shattering. Like, literally, people are tripping out because this man that had been known as a crippled person for many, many years, perhaps as long as three decades, is now leaping and running and praising God and entering into the temple People are asking questions, how did this happen, what happened, and what name did this happen? Peter and John basically uh, state that it's in the name of Jesus that this man has been made whole. So that's where we pick up the story. Uh, I'm going to pick it up at verse 7 and 8. I'll just read it. In fact, I have it up there. I'll read it, and then I'll jump right in verse 13. And it basically begins this with this statement. It says, and when they set them in their midst, because Peter and John got arrested, they're put in the middle of this uh, the, the religious leaders who were basically, their job was to make certain that there was peace and order on top of the Temple Mount. And so Peter and John are thrown in the middle, and they begin to be questioned. And this is the question. Um, it says, by what power and by what name are you doing this? And this is a really key verse. Verse 8 is sort of central to really not just this story, but really all of the other cascading stories that sort of stem out of this. So in other words, this is going to be a repeating theme over and over and over again throughout the entire book of Acts. And hopefully it will be a theme that's also imparted into your own life, that this is what defines them. It says, and then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, and this is where we enter in the story. Verse 13 begins like this. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and Peter and John obviously gave some answers and made some statements, um, but we'll just pick it up at verse 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they had perceived that they were uneducated and common men. And they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the men, uh, that the man was healed and standing beside them, they said nothing to, uh, nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For for that a notable deed or sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny this. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. In the name of Jesus, of course. Verse 18 says, So they called them and they charged them, to not speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John then answered and says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, uh, rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them were praising God for what had happened. 
the man on whom the sign was healing, uh, of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. So God, we ask you right now that you would speak to us uh, more clearly, God, as your word has gone forth, it's been declared. We pray that now, God, you begin to make sense uh, of your word within our hearts. God, show us ways in which we can be transformed. Show us ways in which your word, your gospel, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to reshape us and remake us to become Jesus' people. So we commit this time in your hands, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you all to grab a seat, um, and I want to jump right in and basically just say that uh, one of the things I think that gets sort of interwoven within the storyline here is uh, there is this sort of ongoing perception of what's happening here, and uh, there's at least three characters or three bodies of characters, I think, that we just read or described within the storyline. I, I want to take a look at each one of these characters or body of characters um, and really kind of look at two specific things. One what did each of these characters, or body of characters, uh, perceive um, as to what was going on, or this miracle that had happened? And then secondly, how did they respond to what they perceived? Um, The same could be said of us, that many of us, when it comes to Jesus, uh, we think differently about Jesus. Now, probably, uh, I think it'd be safe to say that majority of us here, to some degree, are here because um, Jesus has captured our hearts. We are compelled by Jesus. We love Jesus. We love God. However you want to describe it, whatever words or ways in which you describe your relationship with God, most of us would say we're here because we love Jesus. Some of you might say that you're here because, not because you love Jesus, but because you're, you're curious about Jesus. You're interested to learn more about Jesus. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you would definitely not associate yourself as a Christian, but you're here because you're just sort of checking things out. That's, that's awesome. But the reality is, is how you define or understand or perceive Jesus or what Jesus is doing will actually determine how you respond to him. Does that make sense? So that's what we see in the story. We'll take a look at really the perceptions and responses. First of all, uh, first character, a body of character in this case, are the religious leaders. And this occupies sort of a, the largest uh, category of group, actually not the largest category, the largest category is the crowd, and we'll get to that in a second. But the religious leaders basically occupy sort of a very large body of very powerful people that their main job was to keep, as I already mentioned, order and peace on this thing called the Temple Mount. Um, last week I showed a little picture of what the, uh, the Temple Mount looks like. It's this very massive, it probably would have taken up the majority of our downtown area. So think, don't think small temple, Think massive, massive, massive uh, property that these guys were basically in charge of. Um, And because it was so massive, it was actually the very center of all Israel and Judaism. So you would imagine coming through this massive structure every year would have been hundreds, thousands of, perhaps even millions of people coming through here. And these people had money and they bought stuff. So this was a major, major money-making um, form of, of, in a lot of ways, it was a business for a lot of them. It became sort of an institutionalized religion. So everything you would imagine as far as like heavy-duty institutionalized religion, this was it. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person that was part of this massive institutional religion was a sellout, because there were some that seemed to truly love Yahweh, that were truly honest with um, loving God and wanting to be honest with God. There are also others that were just sort of power brokers. They looked at this as an opportunity, a racket. They kind of viewed it as sort of 
their means, their world, their hood to control. It was kind of run in some ways like a mafia. And uh, so if, if someone disrupts the peace or the shalom, then uh, you know, they would probably send someone out perhaps to go break someone's legs. I mean, we, we know that they already played dirty because Jesus was killed. All right? So these, it's not beyond these guys to actually figure out ways to execute their enemy because they had just done that several weeks or months prior to the person of Jesus in, in this very context. So that's the first group of people that we'll take a look at. And then we'll take a look at Peter and John, and then we'll take a look at the larger audience of people, and hope, then we'll finish there. But let's first of all take a look at the perceptions and responses of the religious leaders. So they respond, first of all, to both Peter and John, because Peter and John, who are then responding to the miracle, um, they have some things that they notice. So first of all, they respond to Peter and John. So what did they perceive or see or observe or notice about Peter and John? So there's three words that actually kind of come in sort of consecutive order within a couple passages or verses that we had just read. So take a look at real quickly verse uh, 13 and actually really just verse 13. There's three words that are basically used there about what they're thinking, what they're observing. First of all, it says they saw, they perceived, they recognized. In each one of these cases is a different Greek word that's actually used there. Thereo is kind of a word which we would use. We get the English word like theater from. Um, They noticed uh, saw the boldness. So first thing they observe is the boldness of Peter and John, which is kind of an interesting uh, characteristic trait to notice about these guys. If you know anything about the life of Peter and John, um, Peter probably for the most part was a pretty bold guy. Um, he was a type of guy that for the most part, as you read the story of Peter, he was a guy that would basically w- would say stuff first, and then react later, like, oh, whoops, I, sh- I shouldn't have said that. He's the type of guy that would speak something and throws his words out in the center of an, a room, kind of like a hand grenade, and people are, like, dying from the shrapnel, and Peter's like, oh, did I just say that? You know, I mean, Peter's the guy that was like, when Jesus is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go die, Peter's like, no, you will never die. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. And Peter is just speaking. He's just talking a lot. Um, so there is some level of boldness with regard to Peter, but also at the same time, um, we also know that there was a time just before Jesus died that Peter, we're told, denied Jesus three different times, three different occasions. So uh, Peter had this personality where obviously just a few weeks earlier completely denied Jesus. So l- lest we kind of come down upon Peter over that, the fact is that Jesus was literally in custody of the, the leaders of his day being tried um, basically for the most part, for, for treason against Rome. And so when Peter's denying Jesus, he's probably doing exactly what you and I would probably do ourselves. We're afraid, we're terrified, what will happen? We see that your, your master, your leader, your, your rabbi is being tortured and killed, um, and the same fate will befall you if you are part of him. So Peter's approach on three different occasions, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' people? Peter's like, no, I have no idea who Jesus is. By the third time, Peter's literally were told that he was swearing, not saying bad words, not the F word, but he was like, I swear to Yahweh, I was not with them. He was like making these oaths, these sacred oaths. I was not with Jesus. So he was denying Jesus. But here we see a totally different Peter. How, do, how did Peter get here? And I think the key is verse 7 and 8, or verse 8 particularly. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a Peter that was radically changed. Like God transformed him. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He changes you. 
He transforms you. He takes whatever types of milieu that was a part of your life or brokenness or baggage or past or fears or sins or wounds or whatever types of dysfunctionalities you have. And he, even though those may be part of your background, those are incorporated and brought into who you are and God gives you power to overcome those things. And we see Peter with his boldness speaking boldly before this religious group of people. This is a shocking situation, but that's what they first of all noticed about Peter. Secondly, we see that they perceived that these guys were uneducated and common people. Two words that are used here, um, uneducated, agrammaticus, basically means that they were without letters. Literally, that's what it means. It's, a, it's another way of basically describing they did not get their learning or their education from the same rabbinical sources that the religious leaders did. So in other words, it's kind of the idea in our context. It'd be like if you were... Uh, you know, in charge of a massive religious institution, and you went to a fine school, it's at Princeton or whatever, and you got a theological degree from this school, and then here's a guy that's literally from, you know, the outskirts of Lopez Lake, right? He lives in a tiny home out there, or in a mobile home or something like that. It's just like, this guy knows nothing. He has not many teeth in his mouth, and he wears his hat backwards, and He's a complete, like, hick, and he's there in the middle of this religious institution. He's like, and Jesus, and, and they're just like, you did not go to the same theological schools that we went to, and who are you? You're uneducated, and that's kind of what they're doing. They're looking at these guys saying, you didn't go to the same rabbinical schools we did. You don't understand the Torah the way that we understand the Torah, and here they are teaching them the Torah, and that's, that's shocking. And again, it's attached to, connected to the boldness. But these guys are looking for something by which to discredit them. This is one of them. The second thing is it describes them as common, idiotis. We get the English word, obviously, idiot from that. But the idea is that they're just common. They're, they're nobodies. They're not bright. They're not brilliant. This just kind of reminds me of later in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul basically says, look, not many great are chosen. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Look, here's, here's the point I would just say, is that both of these guys, Peter and John, they had no control over their upbringing. They had no control over the fact that they were raised along a tiny little shoreline of a lake called Galilee in the northern part of Israel, which is very country-ish. And here they are now in the middle of sort of this metropolitan, massive city like Jerusalem, and they are literally lecturing, right, the lectionaries, the, the, the skill, the educated elite forces of Judaism, they're, they're lecturing them on the Torah, the very book these guys get paid to teach. But the fact of the matter is they had no control over the fact that they were, they were raised in this sort of hick village town and that, that they were uneducated. They had no control over that. But what they did is that they recognized that God was working in them and through them. And because of that, they became vehicles in God's hand that were able to be used in great ways. And this is the thing I love about what God does through the gospel, is it doesn't matter who you are, what type of baggage you bring into your understanding, your relationship with God, what type of history you've had, what type of lack of knowledge or information or wisdom or anything like that that you bring into it, God has the way of being able to redeem all of those things and by the power of the Holy Spirit through you, do great things. I mean, look, there's times when, you know, I'll, I'll talk with people and they'll ask a little bit about, you know, how did I become a pastor here in St. Louis? And when I tell them, I'm like, you know, I, 
One of the questions, I was talking with someone a couple months ago, and they're just like, well, what, what school did you go to? And I'm like, actually, I, I never went to school. Like, I didn't even go to college. I graduated from high school, and I barely graduated. I'm like, I surfed and studied like in high school. That's about all I did. And, and when I graduated, I started working at a church, and I listened to as much Bible study stuff I can listen to, and I never went to college. And it's kind of ironic that God planted me, a non-educated person, in the middle of a very, very educated community. And I mean, now that, that doesn't mean in any way I look down upon education. I think education is great, especially if someone wants to go in the ministry, definitely get education, learn and grow, get theological training. There's lots of great theological schools to go and check out. Western up in uh, uh, Portland is an amazing one. I know a lot of people that have been a part of that. There's a lot of great ones. I'd be happy to help reference you or give you some information as to where to go. But the point of the matter is, is it, just because somebody has education doesn't necessarily qualify them for being used by God. Um, yes, it can be helpful, it can be a tool, but at the end of the day, what makes these guys come to life and literally confound the wisdom of the wise is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through them, using these guys, these guys being open to letting God do what God wants to do through them, and yet, again, they're looking at them at nothing more than a surface level saying, they're, they're unskilled, they didn't go to the same school, and they're, they're just common people. How in the world is it possible? And I think in some ways it kind of answered their own question because the very next thing we noticed that they also recognized um, that they had been with Jesus. I love this passage because it's just like, it, it is what it is. It's like, like, how can I pinpoint your life? Well, it looks like you were with Jesus. Like, I would imagine for Peter and John, they're like, well, thank you, that's a great compliment. But... For them, it's not a compliment because they're looking at it like, Jesus, this is a guy that goes around healing people, right? As if, okay, funny thing is, as if that's the worst thing that could happen in Jerusalem. People that were crippled are now walking. Can you imagine that, right? But that's what's happening. And so they look at these guys and they're like, oh my gosh, it looks like you guys have been with Jesus. Jesus went around healing people. You guys are going around healing people. Jesus went around doing good to the outcast. You guys are going around doing good to the outcast. Jesus went and made his way up to people that were marginalized. You guys are doing what you can to go find your way up to the marginalized. You're just like Jesus. What a great compliment, huh? And so that's kind of what these guys, first of all, they observe and recognize and perceive, but it kind of leads them to sort of a response. Now, now to them, that, that doesn't make them happy, all right? That's, that's not a good thing for them because it frustrates them that they're like Jesus. Now, remember, again... If you've got to be reminded of the story, they actually killed Jesus because they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like what Jesus did. Jesus totally upset the entire order that they worked really hard to establish. Jesus comes in and threatens to undo the temple system. Jesus comes in and says, look, there's a day coming where this whole thing, this whole system of temple, of sacrifice is coming to a close. They didn't like that because uh, obviously they profiteered off of that. They found security within that. Their life was tied up in that. You might even be able to say their identity was tied up in that. And anytime somebody ever comes and threatens our identity, we come undone. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes we react the way that we react to. It's not just simply that someone is attacking you know, our job or threatening our position, our status quo. It's that somehow our identity has become tied to that Thing, and anytime that gets pushed or bumped 
or threatened or begins to totter. We freak out because we're not just simply losing a thing, we're losing our entire identity. And these guys were, were losing themselves. And they put Jesus to death, thinking that that would basically solve the problem. But we know the rest of the story. So we see the next thing is that they have this perception in response to Peter and John. Secondly, we see that they have this response towards this man. And let's read in verses 14 and 19. Uh, they cannot deny the fact that this man's been healed. And this is sort of the rest of the story. It's really kind of a fascinating. I won't reread it, actually. Um, I'll just draw attention to a couple little passages where, where they, they recognize, it says, for that a notable sign has performed through them, Peter and John, of course, is evident. So I love this because even, even though they, they don't want to you know, joyfully admit to Peter and John, hey, great job, you healed this guy. That's awesome. Okay? Let me think about it this way. Here's this guy that's been there for maybe three decades. He's in his 40s, all right? And now he's, he's self-sustainable. He can stand up. He can walk. He's not depending upon other people anymore. You would think people would walk up to Peter and John and be like, thank you, this is awesome, so cool. Do you have any more tricks like that up your hat? All right, is there anything else that you can do? Because there's a whole line of other people over here that need some food, need some help. How about we go over here and do this? But that's not the case. They're freaking out about this. But they recognize that something miraculous happened through these guys. And they're really upset about this. It says, says that we can't deny this in verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in his name. So they basically, by way of response, they threaten Peter and John, and they say, don't speak ever again in this name of Jesus. And then that leads to Peter and John's response, where they basically say it about verse, eight, nine, verse 19. It says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather to God, you must be the judge. Peter and John rightly respond by basically saying, look, we have to, at the end of the day, obey God. This is kind of a passage that oftentimes has been used to allude to what's typically known as a civil disobedience. So in other words, there is a law of the land that says this is how you must operate, conduct yourself to be a citizen or be part of this, a member of this nation um, and if those laws run counter to God's laws, so for example, if a law were ever to be leveraged, it says you can never, ever worship God on a Sunday. It's kind of like what happens like maybe in parts of China, where there are many Christians who love Jesus that will actually engage in civil, civil disobedience all the time, right? They meet in what's called underground church, not that they, not like, not, that's literally underground in some cases it might be. The idea is that they are unsanctioned religious gatherings, because they know they're actually in violation against civil code. And they're, again, they, they would basically look at this and say, we're doing exactly what Peter and John did, that we are seeking to obey and honor God, even though our nation does not support or sanction our worship of, of Jesus. We have to obey God, therefore we will gather, and we will worship, and we will pay the consequences if we have to, which means uh, imprisonment or death in some cases. And it's what's happened in many cases. So finally, we see that they really were looking for ways to cover up the truth. And the way that they were trying to cover up the truth was trying to manage uh, the media. All right, that's really what, what it means when they basically pull Peter and John aside. They say, don't talk about this name, Jesus, anymore. That's a total media management, all right? They recognize that there's information. Information is powerful, and it's information that runs counter to the narrative that we stand for. So therefore, that information needs to be managed. And we're going to manage that for you by saying, don't ever talk about the name of Jesus again. If you do, uh, you'll be in really, really big trouble with us. 
So that's what governments and leaders and people throughout history have, whenever they run counter to information that uh, makes them uneasy or they don't like, they figure out ways to try to manage that. That's exactly what these guys were trying to do. So they threaten them. So we see, first of all, again, their perception and then really their responses. Second thing we notice are the perceptions and the responses of Peter and John. And this is interesting because we see that Peter and John, they know very clearly that this is a miracle that was done by God. God did something miraculous. God raised this man. I mean, Peter and John were the agents through whom God basically brought healing into this guy's life. So Peter and John recognize God has already been doing something. Um, and then their response to that is they use this as an opportunity to preach Jesus. I love that. Here's, and we've, we've already mentioned this, but again, I just, it's worth reiterating that these guys are super perceptive of what God is up to. So here's the point. God is always, always, always doing something. Always. That means right now at Starbucks or Sally Lou's or Trader Joe's or wherever it is that you go throughout the day, God's doing something there. The question is, are we perceptive of what God's doing? It's one of the reasons why we've always just encouraged you to think about this. When you go into your life, the everyday world, ask the Holy Spirit. Just ask God. God, make my eyes aware. Make me open. Help me see. Help me be perceptive of what you're doing. And I love this about Peter and John is that these guys are super perceptive of what God was doing. So when they're walking by this guy who's crippled, uh, they see a man who's bound. Right? They see a man who literally, not, not metaphorically, but literally is actually bound by uh, a body that has imprisoned him. He's not able to free, be free or walk or leap or praise God or really even enter into the temple, which means that he's really not ever able even to be brought into the actual relation, uh, social relationship with Israel. He's an outcast, in other words. But they're aware of the fact that God is a God that loves to take outcasts and bring them in. So here they are, walking up. They're perceptive of the fact that here's a guy who's an outcast. Oh, that's right, Jesus loves outcasts. Maybe Jesus wants to uh, use us as agents to show kindness to an outcast. And I love this because in that moment when they're asked for money, just on the fly, they somehow have been able to be trained in their mind enough to be so perceptive of what God's doing, they stretch out their hand. They say, hey, stay, take our hand. Rise and walk, and immediately a miracle happened. I wonder if we live our lives every day in a way that's way more perceptive of what God's doing. I think our problem is so oftentimes we're like this, all right? All right, tell me if this is not true. Oh, hey, what's up? Like, that's our, that's our life. All right, honestly, next time you go to a coffee shop or next time you're downtown, just look around. Be aware of what people are doing, even at a traffic light. All right, or even driving on a freeway, for goodness sakes. Like people are just always on their phone. They're not aware. They're perceptive of this little thing that's in their hand. And they're not perceptive of the world around them. And I wonder if God wants to wake us out of that and be aware of what's happening around us, and maybe we'll begin to see God even do greater things than he's ever, because he's already at work. It's not like God's like, you know, he is, yes, he's looking for people through whom he might work, but he's already doing stuff. 
So Peter and John were aware of this, and they reach out their hand. This guy is healed, and now they be able to. Now they're using this as an opportunity to proclaim about Jesus. Now there's two things that I noticed about Peter's speech and communication and preaching, and as he's narrating to them, like what's just transpired, because they're all asking questions, like what happened to this guy? He was he was an outcast. He was crippled. He was unable to walk, and now he's in the middle of our worship gathering, super excited. He's like a Pentecostal. What's happened to this guy? Peter's like, oh, it's Jesus. So he's seizing the opportunity to make much of Christ. The first thing that we notice, it's Peter's clarity. On Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he just basically says this, there's salvation in no other name. In other words, it's this idea that Jesus is responsible for the healing of this man. It's Jesus who did this. Don't, don't, don't look at us. Don't accredit this to us. Uh, we may just simply be the agent through whom God worked, but at the end of the day, it was Jesus who did this. So there's absolute clarity about this. And part of that clarity means to, um, to, to, to stop any types of false rumors or lies in their mind, uh, to basically de- de- defer any type of uh, credit upon themselves and to cast it all upon Jesus. To say, Jesus is the one that has done this. It's absolutely clear. So then we notice is Peter's boldness. Uh, or you can think of it this way, Peter's audacity. And Peter goes on to basically give this narration of events. He says, yeah, but you guys killed Jesus, all right? Jesus healed this guy. It's absolutely crystal clear that this is what happened. But remember, you guys killed him. Just a few months back, you killed Jesus, but that wasn't in the story because God raised him. Oh, and by the way, he goes on to add this audacious claim. He says, there is salvation in no other name. And he gives this metaphor out of Psalm 118, I believe it is, and he says, the stone which the builders have rejected have become the chief cornerstone. In other words, you guys are building this temple and the very cornerstone that was needed to finish up this temple, uh, you guys have actually omitted. In other words, you are building something which is superfluous, which is worthless, which is coming to an end, and God is doing something. He's upstaging what you have been building upon your entire lives, and because of that, they were angry. Now, Throughout modern history, there have been some pretty major roadblocks to people's ability to believe in this gospel story, all right? One of the chief uh, roadblocks that moderns have had with Christianity is the subject of the miraculous, the supernatural, right? Miracles. Um, And part of the reason is that has come about within the West um, as due in part, for the most part, I should say, because of... uh, the, this thing called the Enlightenment. And basically what happened was there was a series of events that led to man's real discovery of being able to uh, use a new measuring tool called science, whereby they can look at the physical world around us, map it out, figure it out, look at it under a microscope, make theories about how things work, prove how things work, and basically try to explain things away in the physical world by way of science, this measuring stick called science. So what's happened is it's led to sort of this mentality that we, we don't need to use miracles as a measuring stick to explain stuff that's, that's abstract, that's foreign to us. Uh, we know that miracles don't exist. It's kind of led to that mentality. And so for the most part, we live in a world that is very material in the sense where it gauges and determines things based upon this physical world around us. And so if it can't be seen, it's highly suspicious of whether or not it actually exists. That's the world, for the most part, which we live in. Now, the funny thing is, is that in the West, there is sort of a resurgence of belief in the unseen. 
All right? We see that through prophet-like people like uh, Oprah, who I don't think she would necessarily call herself an actual Christian, but she's very spiritual. You know, it means she believes in a spiritual realm and the millions of people that follow someone like Oprah. But the point that I would make is this, is that the belief in the unseen world is actually making a comeback in the West. Um, we know, and if you've done any type of demographic studies, the fastest growing churches in the world are churches that are actually associated to Pentecostal or charismatic type churches that are basically taking place in Africa, South America, so on and so forth. And they're all kind of linked to miracles. So the point that I would make is that the idea of uh, the miraculous has been a big stumbling block for a lot of people. And you can imagine why the Bible therefore has a big problem for a lot of people. Because you read stories like this. This guy was once crippled, now he's no longer crippled. So a Western mindset reads that, like, it's the reason why I can't believe this. In fact, Thomas Jefferson actually um, was one that was highly suspicious and skeptical of miracles. In fact, he basically created his own edited form of the Bible. I don't know if many of you knew this, where he took all the ethical teachings of Jesus and edited out all of the miraculous events that had happened. And the point is, is that he created sort of this, this version that basically says we can take the story of Jesus and the ethical teachings and statements of Jesus, but all of the other miraculous stuff, we just, we don't believe in that. We don't trust in that. So again, the point that I'd make is for the most part, modern Westerners are making a resurgence back to at least accepting the plausibility of the miraculous. One of the big, number one, challenging, stumbling blocks from any type of modern person in the modern world is not just so much miracles, but more so it's exclusive claims. So let me put it this way. When someone comes along and says, Jesus is the only way to be made right with God, that's a problem for a lot of people. Because we've lived in a world that, for the most part, has seen and observed the playing out of exclusive claims, and we've seen when exclusive claims are played out, they oftentimes lead to a lot of violence and vengeance and hatred and arrogance and destruction and oppression upon other minority people groups. Do you agree with that? And unfortunately, that's actually happened a lot, even within the name of Christianity. But the point that I would make is this, is that that is not representative of true Christianity. Christianity without question, is very exclusive. So what happens is a lot of modern people, especially people that are trying to make sense of Christianity within this world, and on the one hand, they're like, I, I, I like Jesus. I'm really skeptical, though, of the fact when Christians oftentimes are like, Christianity is the only way to God. I'm really leery of that, and I don't want to say that. But hear me out. The point that I would make with that is you have to take what Jesus reveals about himself at face value. In other words, we can't dictate a Jesus that we would like to create because what happens is we end up making an image of God in our own likeness. And that becomes problematic for a number of reasons. But here's what I would say, is that we have to recognize that there are moments in the early, in the early church and when Jesus speaks that are very extremely exclusive claims, meaning that there is no ambiguity as to what Jesus is saying. So for example, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, in the life, no man comes to God or is made right with the Father except by me. So that's either true or it's, or it's not true. So here's what I would just suggest. You cannot look at Jesus and just simply like Jesus as an ethical teacher. He really doesn't leave you that option. 
You cannot simply look at Jesus and be like, he's a really good guy, he does all sorts of nice things, his teachings are really fascinating and very interesting. You, you cannot actually legitimately look at Jesus or hear what Jesus has to say and come to that conclusion. You have to simply hear what he is basically describing. And it's, there's, without question, Jesus' statements and claims are extremely exclusive. But there's also this radical inclusivity within Christianity. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, all religions are exclusive. There's all religions. All religions kind of have this sort of stop that's put up. It says, here's how to believe. You've got to believe this way. And if you don't believe this way, then you are no longer part of this, this group. But what he says is that, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. Let me give you an example of this as this plays out throughout the remainder of the book of Acts. The, problem that, the problems that we see kind of begin to arise within the early church oftentimes arise because of the early church's radical, now hear me, radical inclusivity. Meaning they're radically making these massive, earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting claims that saying, no, no, those Gentile people, those people that normally would have been uh, rejected there at the temple, we want them. Those, those women that oftentimes are treated nothing more than property, they're beloved by God, Bring them to the table. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's radically inclusive. In other words, the gospel radically overturns the typical social order of stuff. See, a lot of times people will say, well, um, Christianity was not begun in a very inclusive uh, society. And in and, and reality, Christianity within the Roman world there was, there, there was radical exclusivity. I mean, on one hand, it was, it was very inclusive, that you can worship any guys you wanted, but you also had to be able to affirm Caesar is king of kings and lord of lords. In other words, you can worship Zeus, but you have to also affirm that, yeah, Zeus is awesome, he's who I give all my devotion to, but Caesar is even greater than Zeus. Christians come along and they're like, I, we, we can't say that. And so what happens was Christianity was actually viewed in the early church in the early centuries as actually being atheistic, meaning they did not believe in the true God. In that context would have been Caesar. So they were actually called atheists, and they were killed for atheism, which is kind of an interesting irony. But here's the point that I would make, is that we see the early church, it was radically, radically anti-racist, anti-classist, and anti-sexist. Radically so. Where what you would find within Christian gatherings are slaves, people that are owned, and the slave masters. And there's not this social disorder whereby the master has his power and authority. What you would have are the two of them eating out of the same dish on the same level because the gospel has this ability of bringing everybody together in. So in Christ, we are all one. So what you also have are women and men gathering together in the same room, worshiping the same God. Do you know that today in Jewish context, in many cases, women and men do not worship together. Same is true within Islam. They do not worship God together in the same room just because there's, there's, a, differenti- there's a differentiation between the two. But Christianity says, no, 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 you're all, you're all one. There's no race distinction. What you have in Christianity are Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, coming together, you have in the early church this long laundry list of 
nations that are basically listed as all these people that are filled with God's indwelling presence. That's God's absolute declaration that I accept all, no matter who you are, no matter what has defined you, no matter what type of baggage you bring into this thing, no matter what types of struggles you've ever had, no matter what type of defilement, no matter what type of sex or gender confusion you might find yourself dealing with, you are welcome to this table. But at this table, you are welcome to partake of the life that makes you new. And that's what we see in the gospel. So that's where we can say that, yes, all religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is. So... On that level, what we have is that if all you have is exclusivity without any form of inclusivity, is you have gatherings of people that get together and all they really do is they reaffirm how right they are and how wrong everybody else and how everybody else is going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe you've been to those churches or been to that church or been in that environment where everything is about how we are awesome, we do things the right way, we think the right way, we wear the right clothes, we do all the right things, and everybody else out there God's going to judge them. They're all going to go to hell, and we are awesome. Aren't we awesome? Let's all do the awesome chant. And the fact of the matter is, is that they are all exclusive, but no inclusive. But, same time, is that if all you have is nothing but radical inclusivity, but no exclusivity, you don't have Christianity. You have a caricature and a parody, but not the real thing. Christianity is radically inclusive and radically Exclusive, And that's what we see that Peter is basically promoting. Final thing I want to read is this quote, and I'll wrap it up with this. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Stephen Prothero. He was a, uh, a teacher at um, Boston College, and he says this. Sorry, Boston University. He says uh, in this book, At least since the first petals of the counterculture bloomed across Europe and the United States in the 1960s, it has been fashionable to affirm that all religions are beautiful and are all true You've heard that before. Some people will say, well, all religions are the same. All religions are all the same. They all worship the same God, just different aspects of the same God. What he's basically saying, he's basically beginning to, to debunk that, destroy that. And he says that, that oftentimes that's done out of an attitude that says, well, we just want to be kind and polite and, and, and relatable to everybody. And isn't that a nice, kind thing to say? It's just that everybody worships the same God. And he goes on to say that this has been fashionable, um, and that all things are beautiful and true. And this claim, which reaches back to all religions are one, back in 1795 by the English poet William Blake, is as odd as it is intriguing. It goes on to say that no one argues that different economic systems or political regimes are one and the same. Capitalism and socialism are so obviously at odds that their differences hardly bear men- uh, mentioning. The same goes for democracy and monarchy, yet scholars continue to claim that religious Rivals such as Hinduism and Islam and Judaism and Christianity are all by some miracle of imagination essentially the same. And this view resounds in the echo chamber of popular culture. The point that he basically is going to say is that this is doing this is actually not helpful, nor is it actually kind. It's, it's, it's not leveling. What is better to just simply say that, yes, they all have different approaches by which they view God. And yet, what Peter's basically declaring it's simply what Jesus himself has said. And again, I can go on for a longer time, but I just really don't have time to keep carrying this logical idea out. But the point that I would make is this, is that Jesus, if he is indeed who he claims to be, which is a king, 
That means that that monarch, that king, uh, another word that's actually used here in the text is that despot, which you think of the word despot in kind of a negative connotation. It's a word that's actually used to describe Jesus later on in the text. That ultimate authority, either he, when he makes the claims that I alone have the means by which to make those that are sick well. Either that's true or it's not true. And if it's true, then what that means is that any other pathway that may claim to help us at some point is broken or has an expiration date that really, in the end, cannot really do or deliver the goods. And that's what Peter means when he says, Jesus is the only way. And he's responding to this message. And finally, what we see, the perceptions and responses of the crowd. In the crowd, we're told that there's about 5,000 men that responded. Now, a lot of scholars have you know, debated as to whether or not this is actually 5,000 you know, male people plus females. Maybe the crowd was upwards of 20,000. Who knows? Um, but the fact of the matter is there's a number that was given that 5,000 men, people, whatever, uh, responded to this. Meaning, when they saw, it just simply tells us in verse 21, that all were praising God for where it happened. And that, quote-unquote, all that happened, I would imagine, would be, first of all, the miracle, and then the unpacking of why the miracle. So as these guys hear it, they're absolutely blown away. They are swept up, if you would, into the story of redemption. As a result, they offer praise to God. So what we have to do in response is to ask, really, what is our approach to God? How do we think about miracles? How do we approach God? Where are the areas that we stumble on? When Jesus claims Jesus to be who Jesus is, how do we swallow that? How do we respond to that? Do we hear that with extreme skepticism? Look, there are, there's great place and latitude to be able to process and think through and make decisions and to understand. But the fact of the matter is not, not all questions are equally the same. Some questions are asked on the basis of genuinely wanting to understand and know information. Some questions are simply asked on a basis of simply trying to frame someone, not really with an aim of really trying to be a humble learner. And what we see is with these religious leaders, they ask questions, but it wasn't so that they would come and worship Jesus, but it was so that they would frame Peter and John and ultimately perhaps stop them the same way that they stopped Jesus. So what we see are some respond to Jesus and they're swept up in the story. Others respond to Jesus and the Jesus story of what's happening, and they seek to continue to silence it, to stop it. And at some point, the religious leaders, as well as the religious system, becomes nothing more than a footnote in the entire Jesus story. So I want to invite you to think about how you respond to Jesus. What will be the future? Footnote? A part of the storyline. Jesus invites us to come, to cast our concerns and questions, and sometimes even our doubt, down before him, to bring all those things before him and just say, God, help me. Open my eyes. Show me who you are. Reveal yourself to me, and let me respond rightly to you. So we're going to respond now, and I want to invite you to respond to God by recognizing that God's presence, his spirit, is here. I'm going to have the worship team coming up. Why don't we all stand right now in response to God? I'll pray and just Take a moment and invite God's indwelling presence here. God's presence is already here. So we're not, we're not drumming something up. He's already here.
But what we want is to ask God to reveal himself in ways that make us aware of the fact that, yes, he, he is here and that he does truly want to bring life into our hearts and reveal his presence to us in ways that oftentimes maybe we're just not even aware of. Maybe we are just too busy with our life and too busy with stuff and too busy with media and too busy with questions that are constantly bobbing up in our heads to really even notice what God's up to. Let's just invite God's presence to do what God's presence wants to do, which is to reshape us. So that when people look at us, they might actually say, whoa, there's something about you. You, you look like Jesus. That's an awesome compliment. Wouldn't it be amazing if we became a community of people that people are like, man, you're always going after the marginalized, the hurting, the broken, the poor, the people that don't fit in. It seems like it's like Jesus. Yes, we want to be those people. So God, thank you. First and foremost, you sought after us, and we looked nothing like you. We acted nothing like you. In fact, quite to the opposite, God, our lives were defined by the things that we hoped in. Our lives were stained by our own sinfulness. Uh, God, we were defined by our own defilement and the defilement that we brought upon other people. And Jesus, we pray right now that you would just wash us, cleanse us, reveal to us the depth of your love, and we want to respond in worship and praise back to you. Because you alone are the God that brings healing and wholeness, gives us life to respond to you. So let's sing, let's pray. We have some rugs in the front. If you just want to come sit down before God and partake of communion, let's respond to God. Let's open our hearts up to God's spirit.